everyone? How's everybody doing? Good to see your smiling faces here today. I hope you had a great Valentine's Day on Friday with your sweethearts. To all the men in the room, if that statement is news to you, and you're wondering why your wife's been really cold toward you for the last day, it is because you missed Valentine's Day. So go by Walmart. All their flowers are half price right now. That's a true story. Okay? They are all on clearance right now. They're little bouquets. I was there yesterday. Go get some. All right? And if you didn't buy her some for Valentine's Day, and you knew it was Valentine's Day, still go get her some today. All right? All the men in the room say yes. They have some good men in here today. That's good. That's good. Hey, uh, if you're new with us, my name's Brian. I'm one of the pastors here, and I uh, just want to say, uh, add my word of welcome to you. If it's your first time, uh, I'd love to be able to meet you out in the connect point, uh, connection point right out in the lobby afterwards. Got a little gift I'd like to give you there as well. Um, I wanted to tell you guys as we start out today, last week we finished up our little two-week series. We took a little, uh, uh, we took a breath from the story. We kind of stepped out of it for two weeks, and we did a, a series on finances, I mean, it was called Money Talks. And if you remember our jars from last week, all right, what is it we do first? We Give. Very good. All right. Someone say uh, live over there. We got to pay a little closer attention. All right. Here we go. All right. Give first and then we save and then we live, right? Remember last week we said, hey, if this might seem a little bit overwhelming to start with. And so what I challenged you to last week was to take that very first step and say, okay, I'm going to take care of the first jar first. I'm going to give God first. I'm going to give generously first. And we looked at a passage in Malachi, which is really a, it's a test. It's the one place in scripture where God says, test me. All right. Uh, if you missed those messages, please go back and listen to them. They are, there's some truths in there that really can change your, your lives and your financial lives for certain. But last week at the end of the, at the end of the message, we did what we called a 90 day tithe challenge. And we put our money where our mouth is at. And what I promised you is if you would take the 90-day tithe challenge, you give 10% of your income to God, like he told us to do in Malachi chapter 3, that you would test him and see if he doesn't bless you. That's what the verse promises. And we had 39 families that signed up for that challenge. So that's really, really awesome last week. So kudos to you guys for stepping out in faith in that and testing God. And here's the deal. If you, some of you said, oh, I need to kind of think about this a little bit. I need to pray about this. I need to talk to my spouse about this because they're out of town, whatever. And look, if you still want to be a part of that challenge, all right, in the seat backs in front of you, you'll find one of those tithe challenge cards. Fill that out, tear it in half, bring me the half back to the connection point, and I'll make you the same commitment that I made to the people last week. If you will give for 90 days and you don't see God having blessed your life in some way, over the course of those 90 days that you've given, I'll give you every penny. The church will give you every penny um, of what you've given back over the course of those three months, all right? So uh, kudos to you guys who signed up. If you're looking to sign up for that, you can still do so this week. Um, now, if you're new with us, again, we, we've been take, we took a little breath from the story last uh, the last two weekends, but we're going to jump back in this week in chapter 22 of uh, the story. The story is simply a resource that, that collects all the key stories from Scripture, and it puts them in chronological order, which is really helpful, um, especially in some of those Old Testament passages that we've worked through over the past few weeks. Um, and, and what it does is it shows us where we messed up as, as mankind. We messed up, and then it shows us God's overarching uh, uh, approach to saving us, how his, his story of redemption, if you will. And so we're going to jump back into that today. And before we do, I'm going to pray for us, and, uh, and then we'll jump into chapter 22 for this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to open up your word. God, we're, thank you. we're thankful for the power that's in it. Um, God, we're thankful for the way that you speak to our hearts, God. And uh, even sometimes when we read passages, Lord, that are, that are so familiar to us, the way that your Holy Spirit speaks to us in a special way each time we read your word and we, we try to apply it, God. And so we're grateful for that. God, we pray today as we look at probably one of the most powerful passages in the New Testament. Uh, God, would you give us the, the wisdom and the clarity of mind and heart to be able to understand what your Holy Spirit wants to tell us today through your word? Um, and that you would help us to apply it to our lives. And as we always ask, uh, help us to leave today changed and not the same. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, isn't it true that uh, most of us don't like waiting on the things that we want? 
Uh, I, that's probably the understatement of the century for Americans. Uh, we get frustrated when we're sitting in a drive-thru. You know, I, I think about this every time I go through the drive-thru over at like Taco Bell, and I know it's a bad idea to always get a Taco Bell. I get that. I, I admit that, all right? Maybe your, your flavor of choice is McDonald's or Burger King, or one day if God decides to bless our city, it'll be Chick-fil-A, and we'll wait in line together at a Chick-fil-A, and someone said amen, all right? And so here's the thing. Like, when you're waiting, we don't like to wait on the good things we're waiting for. Maybe it's uh, something you ordered online. Uh, I was thinking about this. You know, we have uh, two-day prime shipping now, right, on, on Amazon purchases, and it kills me to wait two days. Do you got? I'm not even that old, all right? But I remember the days when you would order something online, and by the time it got to your house a month later, like, you'd forgotten you'd ordered it. You guys know what I'm talking about? And now we got two-day prime shipping, and we can't stand to wait for the two days leading up to the prime shipping. You know, maybe for you, it's a vacation that you're diligently planning for your family, and you're so excited about it, you cannot wait until it gets here, and you're preparing for that vacation. There's something interesting, though, about the waiting and the anticipation of the things that we want. Here's the reality. Believe it or not, listen close, believe it or not, the anticipation of what's coming is actually more enjoyable than the reality. Can you believe that? I got some proof here for you. This is some of the boring stuff that your pastor reads sometimes just because I kind of nerd out on some of these things. I read this study, okay? It was from the Netherlands. Listen to what it says about this idea of anticipation and reality. According to research out of the Netherlands, uh, published in the Applied Research and Quality of Life. Okay, that's the article. Like, if you're having trouble sleeping at night, just pull that bad boy out. You'll be out in two minutes, all right? Just start reading a few lines of that thing. This is what it says. It says, sadly, we are the happiest when we are planning a vacation. In fact, when we return, according to, according to the study, we're no more happy than the person who didn't take a vacation. And all the people in the room that are like the frugal person in the marriage are like, we could have saved thousands of dollars and stayed home and been just as happy as the people that didn't go anywhere. Don't do that, all right? Take some trips with your family. Take your sweetheart out for a trip once in a while. Do those things. It's good for your soul. It's good for your marriage. It's good for your family. Don't hear your pastor saying that. But here's the reality of what happens, okay? Uh, dopamine is the chemical in your brain that's released, okay? Uh, it's, it's, the, it's a uh, what they call the, the pleasure chemical, the pleasure uh, drug of our brain is really what it is. And in this study, what they found is it's actually the highest just before you go on the vacation. Can you believe that? Like all these hopes and dreams you've got for the vacation, and you get the biggest rush right before you go, and then unfortunately it goes down from that point on. Now, there are some different reasons for this, and they've done various, various studies with monkeys and other people and stuff to figure out how this works. But, but essentially, it's this. This is one of, the, one of the big reasons why it works this way. Because when you're planning your vacation, your mind is processing and anticipating the vacation through a lens of hope. Everyone say hope. You're hopeful for something great, aren't you? Have you ever planned a vacation you did not want to go on, right? Like maybe, maybe it was to go visit in-laws. Maybe that works. Like if that's what your vacation looks like this summer, I get it. You can dread that one. I'll tell you the reality won't, I mean the anticipation will be bad and the reality might be bad too. That's okay though, all right? But here's, when you're planning something, you're planning this trip, you're excited about it. You're thinking about the, the, what, what those, you know, beach days are going to look like when you're in Florida. It's 85 degrees and sunny outside and you're picturing the kids playing back in the background and they're laughing. <laughs> Have your kids ever done that? No, they're back there like at each other with those little plastic shovels in the sand trying to hurt each other. No, but, but the, that's what you envision. And the reality is that halfway through your trip in Florida, a tropical depression sweeps through and like wrecks the last half of your trip, right? Or maybe it's this, you're planning your hope and you're looking forward to this vacation and everybody's going to be happy and healthy. And it's going to be wonderful family time. And maybe, maybe it is it's to some extent. But what really ends up happening is you end up at the urgent care, right? How many families in here have been there? Every 
every time we take a trip anywhere as a Wilson family, we end up talking to a doctor of some sort, all right? And I'm not talking about chewing the fat on the beach. I'm talking about we see them for something being sick. This is, the, this is why it's the, that's the way it's the case. The anticipation is actually the high point versus the actual reality of that trip. Well, here's the deal. Where we're picking up the story today, the people of God in the world as we know it here, really, as we pick up the story, is in this place of anticipation. They've been waiting. They've been hoping for the Messiah. If you remember back to Genesis where we started this whole story, all right, many, many, many weeks ago. In Genesis after man's sin, God promised in Genesis 3, the proto-evangelium, the first mention of the gospel. He says, I'm going to send a Messiah. The seed of this woman is going to crush the head of the serpent is what he said, all right? Symbolically, what, he, what he's meaning there is there's going to be a Savior that's coming. And then what happened? 2,000 years went by and no Messiah. And then he has another interaction with a man named Abraham. And God, God speaks to Abraham and he takes him out and he shows him the stars in the sky. And he says, this is going to be what your family looks like. And to top it off, out of that family is going to come a Messiah named Jesus. And he's going to save the people from their sins. And then what happened? Almost another 2,000 years went by again. Roughly 1,600 years went by again. And then we run into the prophet Malachi, and we still, we haven't seen this Savior. We haven't seen this Messiah. We've not seen this Jesus. We're still in our sin. We're still observing the sacrificial system that God instituted in the Old Testament. And then Malachi, the final prophet to speak in the Old Testament, tells God's people of a king, a Messiah, that's coming to save them, confirming the promises that were made to Abraham and the promise made in the garden whenever God was dealing with man's sin in the garden when they failed him. And yet, generation after generation after generation was left waiting and hoping anticipating what would come. And then here's the thing. At the end of Malachi, see, we, we have a benefit today of living in the year 2020. When we finish reading the last verse of Malachi, what do we do? We turn the page, and who's right there waiting on us? Jesus is right there in Matthew, right there, right there in Matthew chapter 1. He starts out with a big, long uh, chronology of where Jesus came from, of his, of his uh, pedigree and where he came from, the, the line that he came from. The people here in Malachi, listen closely, after the final words of Malachi to God's people, there were 400 years of silence. We have no recorded anything from what God said. Now, if you're in here today and you grew up Catholic, or, or, or maybe you, you still say, I'm kind of Catholic, whatever, the, the Apocrypha that, that the, the Catholic Church would subscribe to, uh, it's not canon, it's not part of the Bible, but they would say, oh, you can get some teachings from that. Uh, and part of that is true, right? right? But that was made, that was created during those 400 years of silence, but those are not considered the words of God. So for 400 years, it was silence. Generation after generation after generation passed on this promise. They passed on this hope. And maybe they thought, is this ever going to happen? Like, when is this silence going to break? Is the Messiah really ever going to come? And so from the time of the original promise in the garden, it's been 4,000 years and then after those 4,000 years and after the 400 years of silence from Malachi into the New Testament, God speaks. 
And God speaks in a way unlike he'd ever spoken before. Listen close. See, in the Old Testament, he would speak through the prophets. He would give them a word, and they'd take that word, and they'd go to the people. He'd speak from a cloud or speak from a burning bush, or he'd speak through uh, the clouds up on the mountain with Mount, uh, Mount Sinai when he spoke to, to Moses. But the way he was going to speak this time was different than anything he had ever done before, and it was going to be definitive, and it was going to be final, and it was going to be the clearest speaking that God had ever done. And here's the thing. Though in every other area of life, the anticipation is greater than the reality, thankfully for the people of God here when the Messiah came, and thankfully for you and I today, the reality of who Jesus was when he was born in that manger in Bethlehem far surpassed anything we could ever anticipate. Amen? And what he brought to us and what he's going to bring to us by coming as a man, which is what we're going to go today. We're going to talk about that in John 1, all right? So you can turn there if you want. What he brought us far outweighed any anticipation that could ever have led up to the reality of who Jesus was. Look at how John John describes it in John chapter 1, verse 1. He says, in the beginning was the Word. You guys read that with me. You ready? Go. In the beginning was the Word. Now, Matthew and Luke, the two biographies about Jesus that include the story of Jesus' birth, they come out of the gate. They tell you about the facts that happen at Jesus' birth. Which, by the way, if you're not familiar with your New Testament, okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those first four books of the New Testament, those are the Gospels. Basically, this, this is the best illustration I can give you for it. It's as if Jesus were standing in the center of this room, and all four of those Gospel biography writers stood in a different corner of the room, and they all looked at the same Jesus, and they wrote down what they saw, right? It was their perspective as to what they saw Jesus do, what they saw him teach, how they saw him come into the world, all right? And that's what we're seeing here when we see any of these gospels. And the one we're going to be in today is John, okay? But here's the difference with John and the way he approached it versus Matthew and Luke. Matthew and Luke wanted you to know what happened. John comes out of the gate in his prologue to his book, his biography, and he says, I want to tell you why it's important. I want to tell you the things that I observed about Jesus after following him around for a few years and watching him heal people. After I saw the things that he claimed, after I heard his teachings, when I saw him die on the cross and wrote and rise from the dead of his own power on the third day. He said, these are things that it took me a few years to collect. I want you to know them right out of the gate before I tell you anything that Jesus did. You guys with me? Say yes. He said, this is so, so important. I want you to have this big picture view of who Jesus is because he's no ordinary man. He's not just another Hebrew baby born in Bethlehem in a manger. We're going to find out that he's the Son of God. Now, here's the question that John is going to answer for us today, and then we're going to close with a question in a few minutes. The question that he's going to answer for us today as we, as we jump into chapter 1 of John 1 is, who do we see when we see Jesus? Who do we really see when we see Jesus? Again, more than an ordinary man, more than a simple baby, though that's the way he came and the way it appeared to some people. And maybe that's the way you've even viewed him up to this day, that he was a good man. He was a great baby. It's a great thing to celebrate, a tradition to celebrate at Christmas time. He says there's more to the story than that. And the things that he's going to share with us, these are not bottom shelf claims about who Jesus is. These are staggering truths about who Jesus is. He doesn't pull any punches here. He just comes right out of the gate with it. And look, and look what he said there. In the beginning was the word. So he starts out with this idea that Jesus is eternal. Okay, if you're taking notes, number one is this. Jesus came before us. 
Jesus came before us. Though he's stepping into time and space as a man, he is eternal. He says, in the beginning was the word. That statement is a return back to Genesis 1-1, isn't it? Do you remember Genesis 1-1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's aligning it here with creation. He says, in the beginning, the beginning of things as we know it, creation, Jesus was already there. He's the word. He predated creation. That means he's eternal. He always had has been, he always will be. Right out of the gate. That's a little bit more than just a Hebrew baby being born in Bethlehem, isn't it? He is eternal. He came before us. But here's the thing. He was there in the beginning, but was he just like a spectator? Like what was he doing there? What was his purpose of being there? Keep reading the verse. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Everyone say with God. John says Jesus was with God in a relationship with God in some way. Now, the next phrase clarifies exactly, precisely what that relationship was. Keep reading. And the Word was with God, and the Word, what's the next few words? Was God. He says, this is not an ordinary man. This is not just another baby. This is God in the flesh. Jesus was not just a good teacher. Jesus was not just a nice, compassionate man who did great social work for the cities that he walked through. Jesus was God. And John wants us to know, he says, look, Jesus is God. He was in a relationship with God in in, in part of that, which means, and what he's alluding to here is the Trinity. Everybody say Trinity. Now, we're not going to take a deep dive into this. We're just going to take a 30,000-foot view of this real quick, all right? Now, the, 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 the people of the Trinity, the persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You'll notice the Holy Spirit is not specifically listed here explicitly, but we do know in creation, right? That, that if you go back to Genesis, where when creation took place, it says the Spirit of God hovered upon the face of the waters. Constantly over and over, you hear God, whenever uh, you, you read the Genesis account, the creation account, it says, God says, let us, plural, make man in our image. Let us create. Let us, let us, let us. You hear that throughout the creation narrative and through that creation story, which is the Holy Spirit that's included in that Trinity as well. But John wants us to know Jesus is absolutely a part of this Trinity. Uh, If you're not familiar with what that means, and uh, many people don't really fully understand what this means, and I I, I will say this too, um, our finite minds can only grasp so much, okay? And, and sometimes that can be a hang-up. For a long time, it actually really bothered me. I'm like, man, why can't I just put exact words to what this whole Trinity thing means? And maybe you've thought the same thing. But there's something actually really powerful about the mystery of who God is, isn't there? There's something that actually inspires awe and it inspires worship when you cannot fully wrap your head around something or someone. Does that make sense? And, and I think the Trinity is really one of those things that we're not fully going to get a clear, crystal clear vision on what it is until we get to heaven and we're with God and we're with Jesus forever. But here's the thing. Uh, He is a part of the Trinity, and we know this to be true. The Trinity means that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they exist uh, as one, but in three distinct persons eternally. They exist as one in three distinct persons eternally. Now, again, it's hard for us to wrap our heads around this, and any illustration to try to illustrate this will break down at some level. I'm just going to give you that caveat before we start this, okay? But, but, But there is a couple, I think God's given us a couple really simple things that we see every single day that actually illustrate um, this Trinitarian idea, okay, of three parts being one. Because you say, how can that be? I, he's one person, but he's three people. Like, I don't get it. I, my, we're, I'm, a, I'm one person, and I exist in, in one way, one distinct way, as Brian. I don't understand how that could be. Let me give you one. Uh, everybody think about time, okay? Think about time. Everyone say time. All right, time is one thing, is it not? But it's made up of three distinct parts, isn't it? Past, 
present, future. All right? They're distinctly different, but they're all a part of the same thing. You, you've experienced your past, you're currently experiencing your present, and you're in the future, experience your future. But they're all three very distinct, different things, but they're all a part of the same thing that is time. Let me give you another one. Uh, a space or dimension. I don't mean space in the sky, I mean the spaces around us. The way that we view the worlds as human, human beings is actually very Trinitarian as well, believe it or not. See, we don't see things in one dimension, do we? Right? We see things in three dimensions. When you look at the world, you see a three-dimensional version of everything around you. It includes height, width, and depth. All right, you guys with me? Height, width, and depth. Those are all three distinct parts of the very same thing, space and dimension around us. And this is, this is, those are simple everyday things that we see and we experience that illustrate the Trinity. But here's the thing. Jesus has existed forever in this perfect, loving relationship in the Trinity with God the Father and God the Son. That's an incredible thing. This is not just another baby. This is not just any Hebrew person being born in Bethlehem. And that makes, think about this for a minute. That makes the God of the Bible superior to any other God. It really does. Have you ever thought about this before? If our God is one God in three persons living in perfect community, there's no need in that because they're loving and glorifying one another. There's no loneliness in that. There's no lack in that. It's perfect fulfillment all the time. C.S. Lewis, a great writer, good one to read. Go read Mere Christianity. He talks about it. He says, he calls it the dance. He calls the Trinity the dance. One glorifies the other and the other glorifies the next and the next one glorifies the next. And they live in this perfect community with no lack and no need. And that makes our God, the God of the Bible, superior to any other God. I mean, think about it for a minute, okay? Think about Allah, all right, the God of Islam, right? Allah if Allah is the one that created the world, and Allah is one God in one person, and I'm saying that with a little G, by the way, okay? It's one God in one person, Allah, right? This is what it means. It means Allah, for all of time, had been standing there before he created anything all by himself. Twiddling his thumbs, maybe. I don't know what he was doing. He's twiddling his thumbs, like humming his favorite tune. I don't know. He's all by himself, which means anything that he created was created from a sense of lack, a sense of need, or a sense of loneliness. Are you guys with me? Like, he has no community around him. He doesn't have that Trinitarian nature like the God of the Bible, which makes him far more inferior. And I would say this today. If you're in the room and you're a skeptic, wouldn't you far rather worship a God who needs nothing from you but wants a relationship with you anyway than a God who wants you because he needs something from you like an Allah or anybody else? It's true. See, the God of the Bible is, is Trinitarian in nature. He's one God in three distinct persons. And John wants us to know right out of the gate. He says, look, Jesus was in the beginning. Jesus was with God and Jesus was God as a part of the Trinity. Everybody say amen. amen. Just making sure you're still awake out there, all right? He says, Jesus is God. And then he goes into creation a little bit. Tells us a little bit about what happened back in Genesis 1-1. Look at John 1 verses 1 through 3 again. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Look at this next part. Think about this. Through him, through Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that was made. Now I know for, for, for myself, and this is probably true of you as well, when you Pardon me, when you think of the story of creation, you think of God speaking into existence everything. We don't think of Jesus as having been a part of that situation there. But John says, no, no, no. Jesus was there in the beginning. He was God. He was with God in this Trinitarian relationship with God. And he says, Jesus was a part of creation, which means Bethlehem, though that was our first interaction in, in the world with Jesus, this was not Jesus' first interaction with our earth. 
Now, when he came in Bethlehem, it was going to be different. The way he, way he came, we're going to get to that in just a minute. But here's the thing. John says Jesus was active in the creation of the world. He was actively working with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, and he made everything that we see, including us. That's pretty impressive. He wants, it, he wants to come out of the gate and give you a big view of who Jesus is. Now, though he had interacted with our world before at creation, when he comes to Bethlehem as a baby, he comes in a different way. Look at what John says a little further down in the chapter in verse 14. Look at how he describes this. This is, this is probably one of the most, I would say, monumental passages in the New Testament, for certain in the book of John. But look at what he says. This, is, this will blow your mind. The Word became flesh. You're like, okay, what's the big deal, Pastor Brian? I don't get it, right? The, the Word became flesh. Even though Jesus is fully God, even though Jesus is a part of the Trinity, even though Jesus is eternal, always has been, always will be, Jesus, number two, became one of us. So Jesus came before us, yes, because he's God. But Jesus, as God, became one of us. He got down in the dirt. He got down in the mire with, one, with us to be like us. It's the meaning of the incarnation, of the Christmas story, of Bethlehem. And that's why this visit was different. You see, I told you a few moments ago, God spoke in the past through his prophets. God spoke through fiery bushes, and he spoke through uh, clouds in the sky, and he spoke up on mountaintops when he, uh, when he had Moses inscribe the Ten Commandments right in the law. But this time was different. He actually put on a fleshly body and became one of us. The God of the universe stepped into time as one of us. Now, before we go any further, I want us to talk about this for a minute. Why does John keep referring to Jesus as the Word? Why does he keep saying the Word? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and he keep the Word made flesh. Here's the deal. Listen very close to this. If you're taking notes, write it down, okay? Why call Jesus the Word? Because a person's Word is the clearest revelation of who they are. A person's word or a person's words are the clearest revelation of who you are. What you say is who you are. Do you remember in Matthew 12 whenever Jesus is calling out the religious people? Now, we'll, we'll have some fun with that over the next few weeks as we talk about the life and ministry of Jesus as we move through the story. But he spent a lot of his time on earth calling out religious people, and it's a lot of fun to watch them squirm, all right? When he calls them out on this particular occasion, he tells them something that's a specific truth about what John is describing when he says Jesus is the word. Okay? What, G, what Jesus tells those religious people, he says, listen, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You guys remember that part? See, there's, there's a truth that's within that. The real you comes out on your lips. What you say is who you are on the inside, which is, by the way, why it's ridiculous when someone says something really mean or really harsh or sarcastic or biting to someone, and then they follow it up with, oh, I'm sorry, that's not the real me. That's a load of hogwash, all right? That's a good Southern term for you right there. That is hogwash. That is the real you. It, you might not have known it was in there, but that's the real you when it comes out on your lips because your words are the clearest revelation of who you are as as a person. And you can't know someone fully apart from their words. Think about it like this. When we used to live back in North Carolina, um, we lived in a really a great neighborhood. It's one of the most awesome neighborhoods we ever lived in. Our neighbors were fantastic. We lived on this little cul-de-sac. It was, it was wonderful. Um, but here's the thing. There was one neighbor in the cul-de-sac who wanted nothing to do with anybody. It, it, was, it, was, a young, it was a couple. Uh, didn't have any kids or anything. A young couple, um, probably in their late 30s. And uh, they wanted nothing to do with anyone. And, and we would like observe them. We would try, actually. We tried to interact with them. Be like, hey, how you doing? And they didn't want to talk. They didn't want to stand at the end of the driveway while we grabbed mail together. But here's 
the thing. I could watch them from a distance. I could observe certain things about them from a distance. I could watch them take their trash to the road. I could watch them get in and out of their cars. I could watch them deal with like the herd of cats that they owned out in their front yards that were always crawling around their house, right? I'm not a cat person, okay? I'm sorry for all the cat people in the room. I'm a dog person, all right? Anyway, that's, that's neither here nor there, all right? But, but, but I could see things about them, but if you'd ask me this question, Pastor Brian, do you know those people? What would I say? I'd say no. I, I, I don't really know them. I, I've observed things from a distance, but I, but I don't fully know who they are. And why is that? It's because we'd never exchanged words. We'd never had a conversation. We didn't grow a relationship from the words that come out of our mouth. I didn't get to know what was truly in their hearts. And listen, this is so, so important. If your words tell you exactly who you are, if they're the real you, listen very closely. This is so important. When John calls Jesus the word, he means Jesus is the very heart of God on display for us. <coughs> Excuse me, my throat is betraying me. He means Jesus is the very heart of God on display in human form. He became one of us so he could show us who God is. If you look Further down in John chapter 1, verse 18, if you look down there, I'll throw it on the screen for you here. He even describes it specifically. It's very specific. No one has ever seen God, okay? No one's ever seen God fully is really what he's implying there. No one's ever seen God fully, but the one and only Son who is God, uh, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Jesus is the word of God because he's the very clearest expression of who God is. And that means something. That means you cannot know God apart from Jesus. So you can't differentiate between the two. You can't be like, oh yeah, Jesus was like a good teacher. He was a pretty good guy. Okay, okay. No, no, no. No, you have to know Jesus in order to know the Father. And that's what John just said in verse 18. Nobody's ever seen God. He said, but the one and only Son who came from the Father in closest relationship with the Father. There's that Trinity again, by the way. He says, he's the one who has made him known. Now that doesn't mean you can't know anything about God. It's just like my neighbors in North Carolina. There were things I knew about them. There were things I could observe from a distance. There are things about God you can observe from a distance apart from Jesus, but you can never truly know who God is apart from Jesus Christ, having put on flesh and walking among us. You can't see God apart from Jesus Christ. Now, if you were to study out the passage there, the actual the word that he uses for the word, okay, I know that sounds really confusing. The, the Greek word he uses there for the word is the word logos. Everyone say logos. Logos means, literally, it means logic, okay? Understanding and logic, all right? The very logic, the very understanding of who God is, is found in Jesus Christ. That's why he keeps calling him. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you want to understand who God is, look no further than Jesus, because our logic and our understanding of who God is hangs on the hinges of the life of Jesus Christ. Amen? You guys with me? Now keep reading. Here's why he calls him the word. Let's keep reading this part. This is really good. Check this out. John 1.14, he says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. He says he, 
He made his dwelling among us. That literally means he made a tent among us. He came to live with us. John is using, he's taking a Greek word that had significance in the Old Testament. It's called tabernacle, okay? It, you, could, you could literally translate this, this verse that he, uh, he made his dwelling among us. You could say he tabernacled among us, all right? You say, well, what's the significance of the tabernacle? Well, do you remember in the Old Testament when Moses went up on Mount Sinai and he was talking to God, right? Remember that whole conversation? What did Moses tell God? He said, he said show me your glory. He wanted to see God. He wanted to experience the glory of God. And what did God tell him? He said, no, it'll kill you. He said, you. I am perfect and you are not. You cannot see me fully. It will kill you. But then God said, I'm going to institute something that's going to allow you to experience at least a part of the glory. And that was the tabernacle. And then the tabernacle was a, was a foreshadowing of the temple that would come, which was the permanent structure. The tabernacle was the tent that traveled around with them in the desert. Okay, you guys with me? Everybody say yes. All right, good. Inside the tabernacle and inside the temple, though, there was still a veil in the Holy of Holies. When the high priest went in there once a year, he would go in and there was a veil that separated him from the glory of God so it wouldn't kill him. They even tied a rope around his waist in case he got too close and they had to pull his dead body out. That's not a joke. There was a veil there dividing him from seeing the true glory of God in the tabernacle. But get what John is saying here. He says, listen, guys, y'all have been waiting for thousands of years. And the tabernacle was just a foreshadowing of what was going to come in Jesus. The tabernacle was just a glimpse. It was just a taste of what was going to come in Jesus. Because in Jesus, we get to fully see God's glory. That's a great place to say amen, church. We get to see God's glory in Jesus Christ because he came and he dwelled with us. He tabernacled with us. He made a home here with us. And that is an incredible, incredible truth. See, Moses and those people in the Old Testament, they desired the ideal, which was to be able to experience God face to face. But they couldn't because of their sin. In Jesus, the ideal became real. The ideal of seeing God's glory became real in watching Jesus live and move and breathe and go to a cross and die for our sins. And in that, we see and we experience Experience fully the glory of God. Amen? Here's what's cool about this. If Jesus is the very word of God, if he's the clearest expression of who God is, and he loved us enough to come make his dwelling among us, to come be one of us, to get down in the dirt, to get his hands dirty for you and me, it tells us an incredible truth about the God of the universe. God wants to be near us. Like, just let that settle in for a minute. God wants to be near us. God wants to be near you. And God wants to be near me. With all your mess ups and all my failures and all of our sin and all of our shortcomings with nothing that we really have to offer him, the God of the universe says, I want to be near you. That's an incredible truth, is it not? See, in John's day, who he's writing to here, they would have known about the Greek gods and goddesses that were supposedly living up in the heavens. The Greek gods and goddesses that were worshipped in those days, Zeus and the like, Aphrodite, all the ones you've heard about in the movies and you've read about, they were these distant, impersonal tyrants that demanded things from their subjects. They demanded things from their worshipers or their constituents. See, God did just the opposite. God came and said, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to take care of everything. Amen? He said, I'm going to lay it all on the field for you because I love you and I want to be near you. 
And listen, maybe some of you in the room today, even Christians need to hear this. Maybe you've been wrestling this week and that sin that's been, that like you, you wrestle with weekly and daily has just gotten you down and you've been feeling like, I don't even know if I can talk to God. I don't even know if I can read his word. I don't even know if he wants to be near me. Let the truth of what John is telling us here about the Jesus who came in a manger tell you that the God of the universe, despite your failures, despite your shortcomings, wants to be close to you. That's a great place to say amen. amen. He wants to be near to you. And you might say as we wrap this up, like why in the world would God go through all this? Why would God put himself through this, becoming a humble Hebrew baby born in a stinky manger in a stall with cattle? Why would he come as a humble carpenter's son? Here's the deal. Number three, Jesus came to bring us life. John wants us to know Jesus came before us, that Jesus is willing to become one of us, but that he did it so he could bring life. Look what he says in John 1, 1 through 5. Let's just read that little chunk again, that passage. In the beginning was the Word. Everyone say word. word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, everything was made. Without Him, nothing was made that's been made. Then look at verse 4. In Him was life. And that life was the light of men, of mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not over it. Why did he do what he did? Why did he go through what he went through? Why did he become one of us when he didn't have to? Because he didn't have to. Because he wanted to bring us life, real life, which is a relationship restored with the Father. When he heard our cries for salvation, when he heard us crying in the garden over our sin, that had broken the relationship with God, when he saw us rebelling all throughout the Old Testament, worshiping idol after idol, turning our backs on him. He didn't ignore the cries and say, you know what, someone else will go take care of that. Someone else will deal with that. He didn't even say, hey, you know what, I'm going to wipe them out and start over. No. He moved to action because he loved us and he wanted to bring us life. See, that's unlike any other God I've ever read about with a little g. That's unlike any other God I've ever read about in my life. He moved to action like Nehemiah that we read about a month or so ago. He saw a need, and what did he do? He moved with urgency to meet the need. Like David, he saw the Goliath of our sin, and he said, I'm not going to sit back and do nothing. I'm going to step out from the perfection of heaven to get in the dirt and get my hands dirty and become one of these people that's turned their back on me. If that doesn't prove our God is a God of love, I don't know what will. Amen? He moved from the glory of heaven to enter the chaos of your sin and my sin because he loved us and he wanted to bring us life. That's an incredible, incredible claim that John's telling us about here in our passage. And if Jesus is the decisive, final, clearest revelation of who God is, Jesus is what God wanted to tell the world. And you know what it is? Very simple. I love you. I love you. I'm not mad at you. I love you, and I want you to come home. And I'm willing to step out of perfection of heaven to come to an imperfect, broken world so that you can have that salvation. I'm willing to debase myself and humiliate myself being born as a baby that can do nothing 
by going to a cross, a criminal's cross, even though I've never sinned. I'm willing to do that and I'm willing to die and be beaten and scourged so that you can have life. See, that's God's heart speaking the word through Jesus Christ. And he says, I love you. I want you to come home. And John wants us to know before he tells us anything that Jesus did while he's on this earth, and he's going to get there. It's going to get good. So come back. Before he tells us anything, he said he wants you to know Jesus came before us. He's eternal. He's a part of the Trinity, and he is God himself. And even though he was God himself, he was willing to become one of us because he wanted to bring us life. And here's the deal. As we close this up, close your Bibles. This is why you can't casually approach Jesus. For the person in the room, maybe that's kind of skeptical on the fence, like, I don't want to give my life. I don't, I mean, like, Jesus sounds like a great guy and everything, but I just don't know. Listen, you cannot casually approach Jesus because of what John just told us about Jesus. See, I hear people say all the time, oh, Jesus was a, he was a great teacher. No, he wasn't. The claims that Jesus made refute any of the nice teachings that he gave us if they're not true. See, Jesus is either crazy or he's the son of God. See, the whole time he walked the earth, he confirmed what John just told us today. He says, I am one with the Father. I am listening to the Father. I can forgive your sins. And they would take up stones to stone him because it was crazy talk. And then we hear what John has to say about him, that he was eternal, that he's part of the Godhead, he's part of the Trinity, that he is divine in the flesh. He's not a great teacher. He's either God or he's a lunatic. And there's no in-between. And see, today, listen, if you've been on the fence about this whole thing, a relationship with God, listen, you cannot approach Jesus casually. Because Jesus, as John said, and I believe it, Jesus was God in the flesh. Come to save us, the fulfillment of the prophecies of old, the fulfillment of the covenant that he made with Abraham and with his people because he loves us and he wants to save us. So here's the question I want to ask you as we close. Who do you see when you see Jesus? Who do you see today when you see Jesus? If you're here and you do not know God, you've not been in a relationship with God, you've never accepted him as your savior, you've never become a Christian. Listen, would today be the day that you see Jesus for who he really is? Because this whole thing hangs on Jesus. If there's no Jesus, there's no hope. When you look at Jesus, maybe today you'd say, you know what, I'm laying down this whole idea that he was just a great teacher and a good, nice man and a social activist. And today for the first time, I saw him. It's who he was, the God of the universe in flesh. If that's you today, listen to me closely. Come to faith in him today. The scriptures make it so simple. If you'll confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. What's it say? Thou shalt be saved. There's no works required. There's no earning it. It's a free gift. But maybe for the first time, you see Jesus as the God of the universe made into human flesh, came, who came to die for your sins, and you would accept that free gift today. If that's you, please do it. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do it in just a moment. And maybe for the rest of us, for the rest of you who have already done that, you've placed your faith in Jesus. When you look at Jesus, do you see your personal Savior only, or do you see the Savior of the world? Let me explain what I mean. 
If he's the savior of the world, if he's God made flesh in order to save all of mankind who will place their faith in him, can you or I afford to sit on our hands and bite our lips and say nothing to the people around us who are going into eternity? If he is who John said he was, and I believe it's true, that changes what we do with our lives, Christian. You can't sit back and do nothing. You can't sit back and say nothing. See, Jesus came to bring life. And isn't it interesting that our vision here at BCC is that very same language? See, we want to join in with Jesus in accomplishing this vision, bringing life to our community by giving every man, woman, boy, and girl the opportunity to see and hear the life-changing gospel of that Jesus that we just talked about. If this is true, how can we not fulfill that vision? If what Jesus said about himself and John described about Jesus in John 1 today is true, you can't sit back and say nothing. Amen? I'm going to pray for us in just a moment. Would you do business with God? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the power of your words. We're so thankful for the power of the word, Jesus. The clearest revelation of your heart. Thank you for the love that you show us. The grace. God, we don't deserve any of it. And yet you chose to lay aside the glory of heaven to be born in the dirt as one of us because you loved us. God, I'll never know why, but I'm thankful. And we're grateful for the sacrifice that you made for us. God, if there's a person in here, and I'm sure that there is, under the sound of my voice that doesn't know you, that's never seen Jesus for who he truly came to be in Bethlehem, would you help them to place their faith in what he did for them today, that they would become a Christian today. They would give their lives, their hearts to him today. Don't let the enemy steal another day of their life. Draw some people home and bring them life. And for the rest of us in the room who already know you, Father, help us to be bringers of life to everyone around us as well. To share the good news that you came to bring to every man, woman, boy, and girl that we see as we walk the streets of Garden City. And we'll give you the glory for what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand to our feet. We're gonna sing a song. Listen, if that was you and today for the first time you saw who Jesus was and you wanna be saved, you wanna give your life to him, you wanna see your life transformed, I'm gonna be right here in the front. Come grab me. Let me show you how you can know that you're saved so you can experience real life. Don't you owe it to yourself to experience real life and not this fake empty shell that the enemy offers. Move as you feel led.